You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 67 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al, this week? Uh, well, as a working mum writer, I'm actually in a world of pain this week. Because <laughs> the school, well, the school holidays have started and to go with that experience, I have a head cold. So I am, you know, not my 100% self and I have school holidays, so it's all going on. <laughs> the joy. The joy of well, it all. you don't sound like you have a head cold. Well, that's good. I'll try to keep that to a minimum. Well, in the meantime, I don't have a head cold, but I oh. feel like every single muscle in my body is aching. <gasps> what have you been doing? <laughs> I went for a run yesterday. Oh, Valerie. And kind of because I wanted to test out my Bluetooth um, earphones with my Apple Watch. Right. And uh, I, yeah, I decided to go around the bay, as in the bay in mm-hmm. Tremoyne, for those people mm-hmm. who are familiar with it, which is a 7K run. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to get – I just got into the zone. But, of course, by the end of – you know, by the end of the seven Ks, I was like, mm. oh, my God, what have I done? How am I going to be able to walk the next day? <laughs> and, yes, it's now the next day and it's um, it's proving challenging. Oh, Valerie. You know, I, I, know. I still think – oh, can you hear Procrusty Pup barking in the background? No, I can't. I think he wants to be part of our podcast because he's – Hello, Procrusty Pup. Hi, Procrusty Pup. <laughs> <laughs> um. What happened to the just, I'm going to do the seven-minute workout every day? Yeah, you know, I decided to go for seven kilometres instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's always going to end in pain, Nothing isn't it? Nothing like easing into it. Oh, dear. Nothing. All right, well, let's talk about writing and publishing to just to ease your mind, to take right. your mind off it. I've got some interesting links this week, and one is from Mental Floss, and it's about um, ten works of literature that were really hard to write. And, you know, it's got things like um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Jean-Dominique Borby, which, as many people will know, was previously editor-in-chief of Elle, but then he suffered a major stroke and slipped into a coma. But when he regained consciousness, the only thing that he could move, he was paralysed except for his left eyelid. And he wrote an entire book by, you know, blinking all the letters of the, um, with his left eyelid. And I think that that's just absolutely I, incredible. I don't see how you could possibly top that as oh. the most difficult book to write. I think that that's number one for sure. However, one that did catch my eye also was the story was dubbed the story that will never be an e-book. And the reason for that is now it's called Gadsby as in G-A-D-S-B-Y. And it's by someone called Ernest Vincent Wright. And he wrote a 50,000 word novel all without the letter E. Did we talk about this book a few, like way back in the day of the early podcasts? I remember us having this conversation and about how extraordinary, because we then discussed the fact that neither of us has a, like on our keyboards, the letter E is completely oh, yes. 
and utterly disintegrated like in the sense that I don't have a letter there anymore I just because I use it so often yes that's so true. I find Obviously, that fascinating we have amnesia that we have mentioned this before no 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 it's just in uh, I remember us talking about that specific book um but it wasn't in a list of 10 difficult books to write well yes and of course the letter e is the single most used letter in the english language followed closely by the letter t followed closely by the letter a and then the letter o oh really because the ones that i have missing are e and s oh okay Maybe you apply a certain pressure on the letter that, S or something. That fourth, it's the ring finger. It's got that. It's just you know bashing down heavily on that S. But oddly, I know that it's E T A O and in that order, because when I was little, I thought I would be a spy, and to be a spy, you need to crack codes, of and you to crack codes, you need to understand word patterns, and you need to understand the frequency of of, of letters, and that's how yeah. I decided to learn that craft. I can just see you doing that. How old were you? Ten or something? About ten, I would say. Yeah, it sounds perfect. My my friend Yvette Pishoglian has a little uh, series called Frankie Fox and it's about a girl spy who cracks codes. Love it. And it's relatively new and I started reading it um, before I went to Somerset in March because I was going to meet her up there. And I, I got four pages in and I couldn't work out, what, like I couldn't crack the codes and I thought <laughs> eight-year-olds are doing this, Alison, and you're hopeless. So there you go. <laughs> Just practice. Read Yvette's books a bit more. Yeah, obviously. All right. What else have you got for us? I have got something that will appeal to some people greatly and make other people vomit. Because okay. I feel that I love it when you start with that. That's, that's <laughs> a really good opening line right there. Mm. Because I feel that in the same way that there are those people in the world who truly, deeply, madly love Fast and the Furious and there are those people who just don't get it. Mm. I, and I, I can imagine which camp you fall into <laughs> yes. and which camp I fall into. Yes. Okay. In a similar way, there are people who truly, madly, deeply love Eat, Pray, Love and those who just don't get it or find it vomit-inducing. I think we're both in the same camp for that one, maybe? I'm actually a fence-sitter on that one. Oh. I know it, you then weren't we are that not fond in the of same it. camp. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fence-sitter because I, dre- I did enjoy many bits of it and mm. – then I didn't enjoy some bits of it. So I, I, I'm a bit torn. My sister, so I, my, my sisters, I said something about it in the Pink Fibro book club recently. And my sister, um, Christine, hi there. Hi, Christine. She, I don't actually know if she listens to us, but anyway, she, um, <laughs> she said to me that she really enjoyed the eat. She suffered mm. through the prey mm. and she closed the book on the love. <laughs> That's the way she put it. I got like, one chapter in and close the book. So I didn't go very far at all. But okay. Anyway, yeah. I, I made it all the way through, mm. although I did sort of skim bits of the love. That was the bit that didn't resonate with me the most. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I know there are many, many people out there who just oh, love it. And I yeah. know that when I went to Indonesia, there were many women <laughs> carrying that book around because I oh. went to Bali and I actually went to Ketut Lia, who is the, you know, sort of 
wise old man who kicked off the entire journey of for of Eat, Pray, Love for mm-hmm. Elizabeth Gilbert. So I decided for a laugh to go and visit Katutla year and pay do? my 55 US dollars for him to tell me that I was a strong woman by looking at my back. But anyway, um, and looking at my palm and, <laughs> <laughs> and that I would live till 102. But anyway. I believe that. He didn't kick off a best-selling book for me. Though. Oh, Valerie. I feel there's a missed opportunity there. I know. There were many women who were visiting Katutla year and who were just around Bali at the time because this was around when it was, you know, really big, who were carrying around their copy of Eat, Pray, Love. And I know that many women were inspired by it. And so what's happening now is that I think it's the 10th anniversary of Eat, Pray, Love. Next year. Now that surprised me. There you go. Next year. How how could that possibly happen? It's 10 years since that book came out. Like, I don't know where my life went at that point, but ah. (laughs) You have been busy, yes. Yeah, you have been have busy been writing busy. books. I've been very busy. But what they're going to do is, obviously, they're not going to do a revised and updated edition of Eat, Pray, Love mm-hmm. because that's actually called Committed. That's her second um, mm-hmm. memoir. Uh, it's, but they're writing, they're, they're publishing Eat, Pray, Love Made Me Do It. Oh, Yes. So what it is, is there's so many people who were so inspired by Eat, Pray, Love that they went on their own spiritual journey or, you know, physical journey or whatever. And, you know, they decided to show, uh, throw caution to the wind and go on their own pilgrimage or their own, you know, voyage of self-discovery. And mm-hmm. so what they're looking for is essays of no longer than 1,500 words. Now, but they need to be submitted by the 31st of July, 2015, mm-hmm. and that these submissions will be considered for an anthology, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's going to be put out by Riverhead Books and Elizabeth Gilbert. Wow, how exciting. Mm. So if you were inspired by the book, then you should definitely think about, you know, did it did it make you change your life in some way, like even a small way? I think even small changes can make really good essays. But I would also like to say that if you are not inspired by the book, do not write Elizabeth Gilbert off entirely mm. because the builder is currently reading the signature of all things. You may remember a few episodes back I raved about the fact how much I enjoyed it and how surprised I was by the yes. fact, given my reaction to the other one. Um, and he's absolutely loving it. So it's interesting, yep. isn't it? Like it's a she uh, just because you don't like one thing by an author doesn't necessarily mean you're going to dislike that author's entire output. That's right. And the thing Mm. is, she can definitely write. And while you Mm. may not resonate with the sort of whinging... Subject matter. Yeah, Mm. subject matter of um, Eat, Pray, Love, she can definitely write. I remember I used to read her when she used to contribute, actually, to The Good Weekend because my friend uh, Cindy McDonald, who used to be deputy editor at Good Weekend, would commission her to write Mm. anything ranging from, you know, In Search of the Giant Octopus was Mm. one magazine article to, as many people know, she wrote the original article who which then inspired of all things the movie Coyote Ugly. So Oh that's right because that was her that was like a memoir style. That's article. what yeah she wrote it for yeah. Esquire. She actually did that. She was the girl like doing Dancing the on the bar. Yeah Leanne Rhymes. Um, wow. Yeah. So anyway, uh she's a fantastic writer. Yes. Uh, regardless of whether you like the content or not. Okay. But 
Moving on. Moving on to something completely different. An interesting thing uh, that's happening in the world of publishing is that the Sydney Morning Herald editor has said at a conference, uh, editor-in-chief Darren Goodsir, has said at a conference that he he, he may be working on a plan to bring production back in-house. So many people may know who are in the freelance writing uh, industry that a few years ago, Fairfax outsourced their um, sub-editing to Page Masters, which was like a sub-editing house, and subsequently then subbed it to a Fairfax subbing hub in um, New Zealand, I believe. Mm. And so that meant a lot of sub-editors who used to work, you know, in the offices here in Sydney and Melbourne and wherever uh, lost their jobs because it was outsourced to what was considered cheaper and more efficient and all that. But now it's come full circle as they're considering bringing it all back. Because, you know, I do wonder sometimes as a sub-editor, you're not just checking, you know, spelling and grammar. You're checking facts. You're checking um, tone, expression. And there are some things that if you're living in New Zealand or Bangladesh where Mamma Mia recently advertised for some editors, for for some sub-editors, you don't necessarily know the nuances of who a certain person is or what it means when they're wearing a you know glittery dress or whether it's relevant or you know that sort of thing so um yeah what are your thoughts on this move well I think it was the dumbest thing they ever did to outsource it I just Mm. feel you know I have always felt that sub editors have been entirely undervalued in publishing and a good sub editor can not only save your bacon in many ways, mm. but they can also like they they bring something to the story, as you say. They bring they bring a knowledge base, and they bring, you know, it's just a matter of like reading something and go, oh, that's there's something not quite right about that, and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go and have a look. I'm yeah. not just going to assume that this is correct. You know, writers sometimes you know will put things down, and it's not, you know, maybe maybe it's just the punctuation's not quite right, but the meaning can be lost, mm. and you really need someone who understands the publication. And all the nuances of that publication to pick stuff like that up, and so I, I mean, I applaud it. I say bring them back, but you know what mm. makes me sad? All those sub editors who were made redundant mm. at Fairfax, you know, are they going to get their jobs back? Some of them, because that's um, hope so. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's just that whole thing of the knowledge that went out of that building. Yes, when those sub editors left, is just just a crying shame. I just, you know. The knowledge and the care, because as many people may remember that uh, last year, the Australian Financial Review had to apologise after, mm. you know, a sub-editing production error led to the front page headline, the world world is F-U-K-T mm. Mm, on the front page. I mean, <laughs> how mortifying. It made headlines around the world. That's funny, though. I mean, we've talked before about how the bigger the typeface, the harder it is to see an error. Yes. There's something really strange about that, but it's Mm. really very true. Like the bigger, if it's there in, you know, screaming 78-point type, you just don't even see it. And I think also people have less care these these days because so much is online. If you do make a mistake, you can, I mean, some people are going to see it, but you can immediately fix it. Whereas if it's in print, everyone Mm. sees it. I know. Mm. (laughs) The joy. Yes. All right. Anyway. Let's move on to the world of blogs. Interesting development in the world of blogs. 
the pro blogger himself, Darren Rouse, who of course is the founder of the very popular pro blogger site and the founder of the popular pro blogger conference, which is held every year. Uh, he has launched a new podcast. Oh, unsurprisingly, it's called Pro Blogger. <laughs> and it's about blogging. So um, tune in and, and have a look. Uh, we, we, he's only released one episode at the time of this recording, but no doubt that he's going to be releasing a lot more. But congratulations, Darren. Yes, and, we look forward um, to um, hearing more of your thoughts on blogging. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. He knows his stuff. Oh, he sure does. So <laughs> let's move on to who's our writer in residence this week. Oh, my God, so exciting. I had the best conversation about – I had a very serious conversation mm-hmm. about writing and bums, bums. with Andy Griffiths. Oh, and yes. Andy Griffiths is one of Australia's most successful children's authors. I um, I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that I saw him at the Sydney Writers' Festival and his signing line was six hours long. Oh, my God. He was there all day signing books. I had to ask him, you know, whether he did some kind of special, you know, exercises prior to that just to get ready to go. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we had a fantastic conversation about um, he, he takes his writing craft extremely seriously and yeah. so he has heaps of great advice and he also shares his favourite writing craft book with us and it's something that he still uses, um, you know, pretty much every day. So definitely worth having a listen to this one. It's a little bit long, um, longer than usual, but um, honestly it's worth it for the conversation that we have about bums. Andy Griffiths is one of Australia's most popular children's authors, best known for the Treehouse series, The Just Books, and my personal favourite, The Day My Bum Went Psycho. Over the last 20 years, Andy's books have been New York Times bestsellers, adapted for the stage and television, and won more than 50 Australian Children's Choice and other awards. Andy is an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and the Pajama Foundation, and the 65-storey treehouse will hit the shelves on the 12th of August 2015, to the great anticipation of children everywhere. So welcome, Andy, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Um, okay, so I've, I've, in my excellent researching, have been through your website, which is, was um, highly entertaining. Um, but according to your bio, you started writing at the age of six, and then you published your first book, Just Tricking, about 30 years later. So I feel like we need to have a little chat about what happened in the intervening years. The lost years. <laughs> the lost years. <laughs> what did you do in all that time? I saw that there was like punk rock band singing involved. Yeah, well, I'd always been writing and my dad's got and mum have stuff going right back to about the age of six, which was kind of mischievous and silly and designed to get a raise out of people even back then. (laughs) And I kept that up all through school, mainly for the benefit of my friends. I loved making them laugh or groan or, you know, (laughs) shock them in some way. Um, And... That that uh, dovetailed really nicely with um, uh, my discovery of Alice Cooper um, in his shock rock period, and uh, and then punk rock, and and I just found it very inspiring and amusing to to create songs, and eventually we put together a joke band, and um, did a concert for the school, which was very very well received. What was the name of the band, Andy? I need to know. Um, well, the first one was called Silver Cylinder after. <laughs> Uh, my friend's brother's surfboard making company in, okay. in his garage, and then it turned into unborn babies. That oh. was the punk, the punk phase. Right. 
And then uh, then the art rock phase was Gothic Farmyard. Gothic Farmyard. Yeah. Oh, I like yeah. that. That's lovely. Then um, and then I realised after a number of years of crafting, I crafted the lyrics. I um, I was the vocalist and learned how to perform them and hold the attention of an audience. But at the same time, I was aware that my real interest was was writing, and I was doing a Bachelor of Arts um, course, a literature degree at university, and eventually that led me into teaching. So oh, I became right. a high school English teacher at the same time as really starting to read how to write books and take courses and develop what was a pretty raw talent into something I could control a little better. And at the same time, discovered all these kids in early high school who wanted something funny to read but couldn't find it on the library shelves. Okay. So I started doing exactly what I'd done for my friends at school and writing little pieces for them, you know, involving runaway bums and <laughs> things that made them laugh and gasp and and go, wow, writing is fun, can we do some of that? And uh, and so then I began self-publishing collections of their work and then collections of my work just with the photocopier and staples and scissors. And, uh, <laughs> oh, and the I, real self-publishing. Yeah, and, and I just thought, oh, I'd love doing this. And so eventually left teaching to study writing and editing full-time. And um, I, at the same time, I'd, gather, I'd saved up half my pay for about three years. So I had a little grant that got me through two years okay. of um, just clinging to the rock face, just trying to find where my place was and what my style was. And at the beginning, it wasn't necessarily my aim to be a comedy writer, it was to be a serious writer, oh. you know, and um, and I thought, oh well, this comedy stuff's all very well, but you know, you really have to write literary short stories to get people to take you seriously, and and I could, I did that, but my heart wasn't in it, and there was always this lunatic tone that was coming through and breaking and <laughs> uh, wrecking everything that I tried to do, <laughs> and and at that point I went, yeah, I get it, I'm. <laughs> I'm a, um, a stirrer and a comedian at heart and someone who just likes, um, enter, you know, in, in its purest form, entertaining my reader. So, uh, so that was kind of news to me after trying lots of different styles. It's really interesting, isn't it, that but you were still, you know, writing those funny little stories but it never occurred to you that, that they were actually your thing because that's no. not what writing was. Is that what it is? You that's weren't exactly. a writer with a capital W if you yeah, were writing was, that kind of stuff. It was too obvious. It was so much in front of my face, I couldn't see it. Isn't that and, interesting? And I think this is the great battle for an emerging writer is to somehow be able to be aware of what other people are doing but then because you always feel that that's the proper stuff. It mm. must be. It's getting published. Mm. And the stuff that you're doing almost feels so idiosyncratic, so kind of just oddly you that you think, well, this this can't be real stuff. Mm. And yet I think that's what we're all craving as as readers is for someone to be utterly themselves in that in in the, the fiction. And the tendency is to copy other people and to sound like, for me, it was Raymond Carver. You know? Oh, right. 
I, I loved Raymond Carver. I discovered him and then started realising that all my stories were sounding a little Raymond Carverish. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, he's a good model. Yeah, um, yeah, really. But at a certain point, you have to go right. I've learned how to write short sentences, and I've learned how to, you know, explore a moment in great detail. But now, how do I apply that to what's coming out of me? Do you so, still have but, those literary short stories that you wrote? Are they still, uh, you know, in a drawer somewhere? Oh, uh, they're probably in, yeah, locked away in a in a deep, dark suitcase. <laughs> in a vault. <laughs> I, I, I have kept a lot of stuff because I am fascinated with the process of how people find their voice. Mm. And I love, you know, looking at the career of someone like David Bowie, mm. who um, in his early years was casting around trying to find where he fit in. And he did some really quite different stuff to what we know him for now. Mm. But he would be he'd try it out. No, that's not working. Try this out. No, it's not working. Try a little song about being an astronaut in a in a <laughs> rocket that can't get back to Earth. Ah, yeah, that's the one that's that the everyone's one. waiting for. But but you can see he didn't know. And um, so yeah, I, I encourage a, a spirit of being experimental in your approach and and trying everything. See what works, and then see what feels comfortable and then committing to that. Do you think then that's why, you know, in 1997, you know, a publisher said yes to just tricking? Is that Was it because you, you'd you actually just followed your heart and your voice at that point? Yeah, by that stage I'd got it, but I'd started in 1987, mm. uh, you know, doing the courses, reading the books and putting the practice in. I discovered a book called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg, who um, was very keen on writers putting the, the hours in and putting right. the practice in. Yeah. And she, she gave a method of timed writing practice, which was to write nonstop any, on any subject um, without editing, without thinking, without trying to control it, just get words on the page for a five-minute period and then repeat it again and again and again. And that that allows you to access your subconscious without the editing function getting in the way, going, well, that's a bit silly or that's a bit rude or that's not appropriate or as if bums could grow arms and legs, you know, let's, 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 let's get onto something a bit more realistic. Um, you need to escape that voice in the in, when you're getting the raw material on the page. It, you bring it in later to edit what you've done and to, to tidy it up. But too often it's fused at the creation stage. So people are very timid and very restricted in what they feel they can write. Mm. Um, and Natalie Goldberg, you know, I recommend her to everyone. Mm. Uh, the first book, Writing Down the Bones, is an absolute goldmine. And it's it's like foot, footy training or soccer training or netball training. You don't just play the game. You actually spend a number of nights each week practicing your skills. Mm. And that's... That's crucial, I think, and it was crucial for me to just learn how to develop and be comfortable with um, putting thoughts into words and also comfortable with my own internal um, landscape of ideas and um, psychology so that yeah, you, can't, you, you, you end up not being able to be shocked by anything that comes up. Are you still writing like that? Do you still write that stream, like almost stream of consciousness to start with and just see what happens? Or do you are you a little bit more planned with it these days? Uh, I, I use it. 
I will use that to begin with. I'll go into a very free writing phase where I'm not, I, I don't know where it's going. And then I, I can switch between the modes pretty quickly now and, and know exactly which mode I'm in. Um, so yeah, I, I still use the free writing. Um, it can be in the form of a list, uh, making a list of say 50 new levels for the treehouse. And I've got to get it done in half an hour. And mm. so then you'll just be pulling anything out of the air. Most, 80% of it will be garbage, but, but within that craziness, there'll be 10% that's potentially usable and 1% that's definitely usable. But you don't get the 1% unless you put in, you know, the whole 100%. So mm. it's a very wasteful, slow process. But uh, it just requires hours and hours, um, and and but then you get those random things that you wonder how the, how you ever got them. And those random, I mean, that's the thing about because I've read many of your books over the last few years. I've got two boys, eleven and eight, so we have quite the collection. Right. So you know, there is a randomness from an adult perspective, a randomness to the, you know, I mean, obviously the stories are cohesive and Andy does this and all that sort of thing. But, you know, like the, the I, I just sit there and go, where did that come from? Why would you, where would you have even had the thought to write that story? Are you, I mean, do you know it's funny when you write it immediately? Like, do you know that kids will like it when you're writing it? Or is it something that you don't necessarily know until you put it out? Um, these days I can make a pretty reasonable prediction right. uh, in the early days I didn't necessarily know it was funny and I get the funny effects by actually just starting with a premise that's a little absurd mm. um, like um, a bum that can detach itself and <laughs> run away from the owner now that's that's a funny premise but then I follow it absolutely logically I go right that's that's what's happened. What would you do? Mm. If your dog ran away, you'd ring the dog catcher. Mm. So if your bum ran away, you'd ring the bum catcher. Of course you and, would. And then I think, then I use a, a structured planning process where I go, what's the worst thing that could happen next? Your your bum has gassed the bum catcher. Um, <laughs> how would you solve that? The bum catcher with his dying gasp gives you the bum catching equipment. So you've got to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> And, you, and then you go, no, no, I can't. I don't, don't know how to do this. And then he dies, and then you've got to do it. Right. So I'm actually following. I'm I'm utterly ruthlessly logical, and I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to solve a series of increasingly absurd problems, and then I just trust that that's going to be engaging and amusing for the reader. Well, it's kind of funny, just thinking about it. I, I just, I mean, I just had this vision of you going to your publisher and saying, look, I've written this book. It's called The Day My Bum Went Psycho. What do you reckon? Um, <laughs> was there initial resistance? I mean, were parents and teachers initially resistant to that kind of stuff? And like, did your publisher go, are you mental? Like what, what sort of response do you get when you send that stuff, <laughs> when you send that stuff in? Well, uh, uh, the, to begin with, um, I've always gone with Tim Winton's analysis of writing for children, how it's a little more complex because you can't just write to the child. Uh, um, in, in normal writing, it's you who, have, who writes a story that you like yeah. to the audience you think would like it. Yeah. Um, and that's a straight transmission. But to get to a child, you have to go through gatekeepers, mm -hmm. librarians, teachers, mm -hmm. parents. 
and what a parent finds amusing is not necessarily what the kid finds amusing and vice versa. So you need to somehow get the um, the craziness and sometimes the rudeness across in a way that doesn't offend the older readers um, and is acceptable. So there's quite a little balancing act that a lot of people are not aware of and why you can't just fill a book with poo and bum and <laughs> stuff because as adults we just go, oh, this is disgusting. I don't, I don't want to read this. Um, so, so there's that. And I was very careful for the first four books, just tricking, just annoying, just stupid and just crazy, to utterly take that into account. Right. But I was increasingly meeting librarians who said, I had to take your book off the shelf oh. because a parent complained that, you know, the boy was disrespectful to someone and yeah. so I had to take it out of out of circulation and I was, I was outraged. Mm. I just thought, how could one parent control what happens in your entire library? And so I, I became increasingly rebellious and, uh, and also at the same time the kids would say, what book are you going to write next? And I would, just for jokes, say, I'm going to write a serious book. And they'd all go, oh, and I'd go, yeah, well, you know, life's not all fun. Uh, this one's called the, the Day My Bum Went Psycho. And then they would laugh because they realised I'd taken them in. And um, that was just a joke for a number of years. And then I thought, wow, I should really write this. And the publisher, was, the publisher said, are you ever going to actually write that? And I said, well, yeah, it'd be kind of fun. And then I could wave it at all the librarians and they and and every get everyone saying the word bum, bum. over and over and over. Because bum's a funny word. It bum's is a funny and, word. Yeah. And that's what I knew from my research of being a visiting writer in schools that this this had a power because it's it's you know there's embarrassment and um, um, tension associated with it because it's an unpredictable part of your body. And kids often get into trouble for what their bum does. So I just thought, what's the worst thing your bum could do? Jump off your body and try to take over the world. Um, this is possibly the best conversation I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> it's all it's all utterly logical to me. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's based on emotional truth, um, and the kids. That's why it is so funny because. Kids have this embarrassment around it, and often when we're embarrassed, we release that tension by laughter. So I thought, let's put let's put bums at the centre of a plot, uh, an action thriller, mm. and the bad guys are the bums, and that's then we just tell it straight. And uh, that's what I did. Um, were you I, laughing while you were writing it, or were you actually just intensely, seriously, okay? Uh, if my bum no. did this, I would do that. Totally, I'm laughing and I'm just delighting. In could I get away with this? Why not? You know, and <laughs> and, and just like, how gross can I make this? Oh, it's pretty gross. I mean, what if I did that? And you know, they're on top of the stench gant or the great unwiped bum, and they have to get to the the um, brown sea or something. Oh. And then I thought, how had had oh well, he'd have a wart, he'd have a pimple on top, and they sit on the pimple and then burst it and go flying over the forest and um, oh, into yeah. the ocean. And and it's just it's utterly gross, but it's so ridiculous that you, your only option really is to laugh. Um, and luckily, everyone did. Well, not everyone, but um, yeah, I just wanted to move us on from trying to be so precious with children's books. Meanwhile, 
movies, television, video games, computer games are all they've got. They can do anything they want, mm. and and books were just looking like these tired, precious little polite things that everyone wanted everything to be nice and no one, you know, doing anything offensive. And I was that was utterly unlike my experience of reading as a child. Mm which was books were a wild playground where you confronted the unacceptable and the um, the taboo and the slightly scary. And, um, you know, The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss is about a cat that comes in when the mother goes out and uh, attempts to wreck the house. Mm. You know, it's, it's not pretty or polite. And I just felt we'd got to this weird place where books were not keeping pace with where children were at. Do you think that adults just sometimes take the whole, like they just take reading too seriously? Is that part of the problem? Yeah. Um, and they, the, the main problem adults have, have had with my books and in, in books in general is thinking that if a child reads about a character who transgresses the bounds of politeness or common sense, that the child's reader is not sufficiently well-developed enough to tell the difference between um, that and real life. And they'll think that you're giving them tacit permission to use these words or to emulate the behaviour of the out-of-control kid that I love writing about. Mm. Um, Whereas my experience was, of course, they know the difference. And that's why this is amusing and a fun imaginative exercise. What happens when you don't... um, look both ways when you cross the road. Uh, you know, the, this was fundamental to my understanding of reading. That's why I loved it. Mm. And um, and I tell you, over the years, people realised, oh, the kids know this is a game and this is fine. And the worst effect that it was having was making them want to read. Mm. But adults were, you know, say delightfully slow in, <laughs> in realising this. And the bad book got me into a lot of trouble. Everyone said, you're teaching children to be bad. And I go, no, the kids know all the rules. They, they don't need anyone telling them what's what's appropriate. But they love to see kids disobeying those rules. Mm. And, um, so, yeah, that's that was the main argument I used to have. But the Treehouse series actually takes all of those experiments and puts it in a very accessible package for both children and adults. Which is why it's been so successful, you think? I think so. And because we did all the experiments, you know, I I did all the gross-out humour in the bums. There was four books worth of that Mm. until I finally got to the end of it and went, right, yes, I've explored gross-out humour to its maximum. Do you think Um, the Bummersaw book was the zenith of that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Bummersaw book... Uh, in which, for those uninitiated, about 80, <laughs> 80 bummersaurs, including the Tyrannosaurus rex and <laughs> Triceratops, are all scientifically illustrated and, yes. and explained. But you'll see that starts looking like the Treehouse book. Mm. It's heavily illustrated. The text is much shorter and more playful. And uh, we were just wor- working towards it. The bad book explored all the taboo humour but it, it hammered out the form of how we could work to, to do a longer narrative. So there's nothing that, that I have done in the past that was wasted. 
yeah. uh, in the discovery that um, the treehouse could tell a long, complex narrative um, using pictures as the um, replacement for long, boring descriptions, and uh, and make it accessible to a ch- to an emerging reader, to a very good reader, can go back and find a lot of stuff in there. So I should probably explain at this point that the we is you and and Terry Denton. When did you guys actually start working together? We started working in 1993 when he he was assigned to the very first book I had, which was a creative writing textbook. Right. Um, And the publisher put us together. Uh, We hadn't met, but I saw what he'd done and just realised that there was a kindred spirit here, Mm. a, a lover of anarchy and wild freedom was coming out of his drawing and he eventually met uh, we eventually met on the school kind of circuit entertaining kids in in schools and he offered to illustrate anything further that I did Great. which was enormously helpful because publishers were still very nervous of me at, at that point they didn't mm. really understand the the chaotic nature of the humor um, but having Terry who was um, an established illustrator um, at that point um, made it made me a safer bet for the eventual brave publisher who published Just Tricking at the end of a 10-year kind of apprenticeship for, yes. for me. So it came out fully formed after 10 years of, wow. of um, constant experimentation. Just trying to find the exact right voice and style that would allow me to be completely natural in the fiction. And and when you're completely yourself, I think the reader just believes you. Yes. Um, and that's what, that's what it's about. You're trying to get the reader to completely believe in this fictional world that you're, you're setting up. And, um, and with The Treehouse, I think more than any other book or series, the children believe that that world exists even after they've stopped reading the book. Mm. They, they imagine that me and Terry and Jill are all <laughs> madly <laughs> trying to get another book together, which is, you know, not that far from the truth. From the tr- yeah. So do you work together right from the inception of a story, like you and Terry, or do you write words and then convene? Or I mean, how, do you, how does that process work? No, I, I have a rough outline, uh, an idea, which I don't develop very far at all, and then I have a number of sessions with Terry where I sort of tell him the idea and he starts doing little cartoon strips to illustrate scenes and passages of action. And as he does that, I start to um, develop my idea so that it's my idea is developing from his input and then my further developments influence his further right. illustrations. So that was our aim back in 2003 when we started The Bad Book. That was that was the first book that we started playing with this idea of actually writing and drawing together yeah. rather than separate. And um, so there'll be that's probably about two weeks of storyboarding and then I get to, um, I bring all that back to my wife, Jill, who's an editor, and we then probably put two or three months of very hard work uh, structuring it all into a, a sequential narrative wow. using, using the pictures in a cut-and-paste sort of method. Mm. Um, and then we, we, we t- 
telling each other the story, really, using those pictures and my my ever-increasing words. And we keep finding new possibilities. Now, Terry may now come drop in for a day and we'll say, look, we've got this idea for a section. Can you draw us some pictures or can you draw a character? We, we don't know what this character's going to look like. And then he might do 20 versions of a character. Wow. And we'll... I'll find one and I'll go, that's that's exactly what I'm looking for. And then that helps me. That helps me to know what to write and wow. how to refine it. So it's uh, it's back and forth for a, an entire year. Wow. So it's very complex and very collaborative to come out with something that the children read so easily, isn't it? Like it's yeah. a, they yeah. always say that, you know, easy reading is damn hard writing. It sounds like that would be the case. Yeah, and it's it's not unpleasurable. I mean, it's it's like working out a vast crossword puzzle or something. It's very um, it's like problem solving nonstop. Um, but yeah, Jill is crucial. She's she's the editor. Yeah. Um, she tells us when we're getting too far down the rabbit hole of conceptual <laughs> humour. Right. Um, she brings us back to characters and voices and conversations. Uh, because left to our own devices, we can do, you know, two dozen pages of a dog barking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> conceptually very funny. And she might go, you know, really, 12 pages? And I, I think two would be better. And I go, no, 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 six, six. And we'll, we'll agree on four. So. <laughs> um, so she's crucial in making sure that we're keeping... Um, connected to a wider audience and, and also, of course, a female audience because uh, I'm quite passionate about the books not being for boys right, or, okay. or, um, or excluding girls in any way. And, and our readership has always been 50% female. Oh, that's brilliant. But, uh, there is stuff that appeals to boys. Yes. But it, it doesn't exclude the girls. And that's what Jill is a character in the book who is mixing it up uh, and as brave and as action-based as, as the boys. Excellent. All right, so in your FAQ section, which I read with great interest, you, um, you said that you get a rush of ideas for a new book as soon as you finish one. Has there ever been a time when that wasn't the case? Like, have you ever experienced writer's block in any sort of way? Not really because of the Natalie Goldberg timed writing practice method. Oh, of um, course. If you just set the timer and start writing, something is going to happen within five minutes, within ten, a half an hour or an hour. You, it's literally you cannot fail to find something after that, after just an hour. Right. Um, the I do remember we'd done the bad book, which is a collection of rhymes and poems and songs and cartoons that are all relentlessly exploring the idea of kids being bad. Right. The opposite to good. This happens in all of those. And then we did the very bad book, and the kids loved that one. And then we thought, oh, it might be time to do the very, very bad book. <laughs> and um, Terry came along. We we went away for a week, and we know to a beach house down in um, on the outside of Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria. Yep. And we know if we set aside a Monday to Friday, we've got five days, we, we, something has got to happen in those five days. Right. Because you'd feel really bad coming back <laughs> with nothing. So we just sit down. We don't have a real idea. And I say, right, what, what, can we, what haven't we done in the previous bad books that we can do? 
and he showed me a collage picture of a tiny little cartoon bird that he'd done holding a photograph of an enormous gun. Mm. And it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> the cutest little bird, the most dangerous-looking gun. And I was like, well, you've, you've gazumped us there. We can't go beyond that for badness. <laughs> um, and I said, well, maybe we'll... So we were sort of stuck. and We didn't want to repeat ourselves. But we wanted to keep going. And then I said, maybe if we bring Andy and Terry and uh, ourselves as the hosts of the bad book, yeah. we can we can be bad hosts and bad things can be happening to us while we're telling the bad stories. So this was seemed promising. And I said, we'd probably live in somewhere like a treehouse, really cool, <laughs> um, you know, with a tank full of bowling, a bowling alley and a tank full of man-eating sharks. So can you draw something like that? And meanwhile, I'll start working on, you know, how we'll approach the reader. And um, and over two or three hours that afternoon, he drew what became the cover of the 13-story treehouse. Wow. Because he added all this other stuff and, and made it totally convincing. And I said, I didn't know you could draw like that. And he said, oh, yeah, I used to do architecture at university before I dropped out. So um, I said, that world that you've created in the treehouse is is what we need to write about. That's that's more interesting to me than doing another bad book. Yeah. And I said, we'll be in it and we'll be trying to write our book and we won't be able to write the book because we're getting distracted by all the stuff in the treehouse. So that was that was the how that happened. So from the writer's block yeah, of not, not being able to do the very, very bad book, something far greater came. And perhaps we couldn't do the very, very bad book because we'd, we'd worked it out in a sense. We'd explored the whole idea. Mm. Um, and I think that's very important that a creative project should be something that you don't quite understand. You don't quite know how it's going to come out. And it's in the process of trying to wrestle with it and bring it under control that the creativity actually happens. So, um, so you're up to 65 stories. How many stories do you think this treehouse has got in it? Well, each time I, as I say, each time I finish a book, another area becomes apparent <laughs> that, that we haven't explored. And the 65 was exploring what a number of people, adults have said at these talks. I said, do you have a permit for this treehouse? <laughs> and they're trying to be funny, but I'm, I'm like... Actually, that's a really good question. Yeah. Most likely, I would have given Terry some money to go get a permit. Yeah. And he would have traded it for something <laughs> stupid. And then um, then we don't have a permit. And that obviously necessitates a visit from a safety inspector, a permit guy. Fantastic. Um, inspector Bubble Wrap <laughs> comes and looks at it and goes, I've got to, show, I've got to demolish this treehouse. It's totally unsafe. And then they have to figure out how they're going to get the permit, which is done by Terry creating a time machine out of a rubbish bin. Of and they go back in time to get the permit. Oh, that right. He was supposed to get six and a half years ago. <laughs> but instead they go 650 million years back into the past. Oh. And go bouncing all over history because oh, the time fantastic. machine doesn't work properly. <laughs> So um, so that's that's that one. And then a lot of kids are asking about a movie. Oh, yeah. And, um, if, you know, part of the whole appeal of this book is that it's it's happening in your head mm. and that the treehouse doesn't have to be worked out 
logically. No. Because it changes shape every book. Um, so it's nothing that we're, we're um, wanting to happen anytime soon. Right. But that, that book will be about the movie. Okay. Yeah, All right. The disastrous attempts of a Hollywood producer to make a movie. Did so, you read yeah, a lot of um, Enid Blyton when you were a kid? Totally. Yeah. I'm <laughs> getting far away tree vibes. <laughs> nothing but Enid Blyton from the age of about eight to 11. Right. Because she was the only one I could trust to get the story started fast, no moralising, a world of, of adventure and um, pleasure and danger all mixed in. And kids on their own always. Kids on their own yeah. having adventures. Yeah. And um, yeah, the faraway tree was uh, a huge influence on, on me and in particular the treehouse. But not wasn't copying anything. I was just trying to um, be true to the feeling of infinite um, novelty that I would get from reading that book. Yeah, yeah. So and that's true. why the tree just keeps extending endlessly. And, and and to answer your question, no, I don't know when the Treehouse series will end. No. But, uh, as long as there's life and something new to explore, it'll it'll keep going. But, oh, judging but by the interest, I mean, there's, you know, they're lining up out the front of bookshops for it when it comes out. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not sure they'll let us stop through for at least a few more books. No, definitely. All right, just to change the subject then, um, a subject that comes up a lot with authors these days is this business of, you know, creating an author platform and a brand. And, I mean, obviously you've been writing and, you know, very consistently in a similar, you know, vein of voice, all that for, for many years. But I also know that you're on Twitter and you have a Facebook page and stuff. So you obviously, like, do give a nod to that. Do you put a conscious effort into into this business of an author platform? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Well, you said it just then. I give a nod to it. Right. Um, and it is important and, and can be... I always saw... See, I was writing pre-internet. Yeah. Um, and as that came in, I saw websites as a tremendous opportunity to promote books yeah. and for kids to find out about new books. Yeah. So I was an early adopter of that. And I had my website up and all the school project information on the on the website. Yeah. Because you used to get a lot of letters yep. wanting, you know, date of birth, <laughs> place, error, all that. Oh yeah. Um, but I always saw it. This is this is great. We can now find out about books and authors faster than ever. Um, the social media aspect, I'm less excited about because a book for me is really a, a tweet that mm. takes a year to write. Mm. And so books have always been connecting with a larger audience, but I I much prefer putting a lot of work into things, and mm. whereas Twitter is off, off flying off the top of your head, uh, ideally. Um, so I think it's important, but it's important not to get the cart before the horse in this um, mm. um, respect. I think the work really has to go into the books and reading. And where I see the danger of Twitter and Facebook is that it it's another distraction mm. that can, can take you away from, say, re, re-reading one of your favourite books, which will inspire you to write a much better book. Um, but if you're too busy tweeting back and forth with this and that, um, you don't, you're not going deep. No. Yeah, so that's I, I use it at arm's distance um, okay. for very specific book promotion purposes. So what do you think then is the best way, like 
for a children's author these days to build their profile? Like, is it? Do you need to? Do, is it school visits? Is that the the way forward? I do think there's no substitute for having a live audience yeah. in front of you, and that can be as few as you know half a dozen kids. Yeah. Um, to read them a story and then to observe them very closely and see if they're responding to what you're writing. Mm. Uh, a lot of writers are scared of that because it's kind of you're putting yourself out there and what if it fails? Mm. But I would rather it fail in front of six kids than work on an entire book and then put it out and find no one's very interested. Mm. Um, so I've always totally believed in in getting an audience at the right time and and testing it out and mm. then adjusting it and going, oh, I seemed a bit bored at that, that introduction. What if I get rid of the introduction and start with something that just grabs them straight away? You only learn that um, in front of an audience. Mm. Okay. Uh, and unless you're a literary writer who's not terribly concerned about that. Mm. That's a different type of writing, but yeah, for me, it's always been a conversation, and a conversation involves two people, not just not just you uh, talking at them, which is a, a very common mistake of many children's books that are actually published. Okay. All right, so then um, that seems like an opportune moment for me to throw in the top three tips for aspiring authors question. What would your mm-hmm. top three tips for aspiring authors be? Um... Only three. Yeah, only th- um, yeah, I know it's hard, isn't it? Just, just the three. Well, I am a big believer in in the timed writing practice, in putting the hours in. Right. <clears throat> so, um, writing for at least half an hour to an hour a day. Right. Now that practice can start with just five minutes a day. Mm. That's how I started trying to fill up two pages of an exercise book. Um, that was my basic daily commitment. And that very quickly I strengthened and found much more to write about until it was 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So you build up. But without that constant practice that's not involved in creating a story but just exploring yourself, um, I think that is that is really useful. Um, a reading, re- rereading your favourite books the things that really inspire you, even if they're not um, acceptable literary classics um, such as Enid Blyton or my collection of horror comics that I've <laughs> still got from when I was 10. Right. I get so much delight and inspiration from those. Right. And and that delight and inspiration goes directly into what I'm writing. So you've got to read and you've got to keep discovering new stuff and... Um, that's that's like the compost that that enriches anything that you do, um, and I guess uh, from what we've talked about, finding an audience, right? <clears throat> testing your stuff on an actual uh, group of people. If it's kids that you're writing for, then yeah. kids is a good one. Um, but I did a lot of spoken word readings for uh, you know twenty for adults in the early days. And that it, that taught me a lot too right. about where you could take an audience and uh, what you could do to them. And taught me that I was not a, a particularly good at being serious, but I loved <laughs> making them laugh. Um, that's really valuable information for helping you to to decide who 
are as a writer and, and what you'd like to achieve. Yeah. All right. Well, those are excellent tips. Thank you so much, Andy. And thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure that our listeners will have learned a lot and I'm sure that our conversation about bums will have no doubt entertained them because really, I just don't think there's enough bums in the world. Um, so yeah, so thank you very much and uh, really good luck with the 65-storey treehouse. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, bums. Bums, bums and writing. Like, honestly, it was like that was one of the most fun conversations, like fun writing conversations that I've had in ages because, you know, he, he does take it. It's a really serious thing and it's very, very it difficult to create what he and Terry Denton create in those Treehouse series at mm. such a, on such a regular basis. They're doing an amazing job and I, um, my boys just absolutely love yeah, them. So love popular. Them. Yeah, so the popular. kids love them. They're brilliant. So anyway, so that was... That was Andy Griffiths and I enjoyed it very much. Very now, exciting. What have you got for us? I have as our web pick for this week a YouTube channel and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and the YouTube channel is just called Pronunciation Book because, hmm. you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and you, you pronounce this word for me, Al. A-W-R-Y. Awry. Awry, that's right. But she said Ori. Oh. Now, that's she's a well-read person, but that's also because, and one of the things, she pronounces quite a lot of things unusually because she actually started reading at an extremely young age and so was reading really big words, you know, a lot mm -hmm. earlier than most children. And mm. because she hadn't heard them, because no one was using those big words to her and she wasn't even hearing them on television or whatever, she just imagined what the pronunciation would be and that kind of stuck with her for ever forever how funny yes but so this is useful for well people like her but also people maybe who are just unsure about certain words and uh who maybe um, english isn't their first language and it's a whole series of videos that tell you how to pronounce different words and it starts off as simple as pronunciations of you know one now stop yes right now okay you're saying pronunciation, and it's pronunciation. Pronunciation. Apologies. No, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, keep going. Yes. <laughs> yes, pronunciation. So it's things like one, two, three, you know, numbers, but yeah. it also it's also words, a whole range of different words, you know, like horse or whatever. So you just need to find the right video to help you pronounce <laughs> the, the right word. So there you go, just a whole heap series of videos. I, I've often had to look up um, the last names of authors oh, yes. before we interview them. Yes. Because the way that a, an author's name looks on the page and the way that it's actually pronounced mm. is not necessarily the same thing. So I've done that. And the other thing I've had to, yeah, and other um, like awards. So different awards from overseas, you know, that are named after famous authors and they, yes. some of them are a little bit tricky. So I, um, I look them up, but I have to, so what you basically get with those is the, you know, the, what do you call it? Where they break it down into the a phonetic, they give you a phonetic, uh, in writing, um, pronunciation for yes, the word. Yes. And obviously these people have worked out the most commonly searched, you know, I, mm. I assume they've worked mm. out the most it commonly must be. searched. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, the number, 77, interestingly. 77? Yes, has had 204, over 204,000 views. 
And to see how to pronounce 77. 77. But the word shrimp is around 19,000. Zoology is 22,000. Ulysses is 43,000. And Jolra, which is the leader of the student insurrection in Les Mis, is, is 33,000. Right. And Acacia is 27,000. And Megan Fox is 40,000. <laughs> Megan Fox is 40,000. Yes, you know, she's in the Transformer movie. <laughs> Maybe they're just looking for pictures of her. Oh, she's very beautiful. Possibly. <laughs> but I think you would actually type in pronounce Megan Fox. Yeah, probably. Okay. How do you pronounce Megan? Oh, because maybe they're thinking she's a Megan. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, maybe she is. Maybe she is. You better okay. look that up. Yeah, I better, look, I better play that video. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, uh, but let us move on to let our us. working writer's tip for this week. And what do you have for us, Valerie? It is actually a post on the Australian Writers' Centre blog, and we'll put the link in the show notes, and I think it's particularly useful because it is what freelancers and what new freelancers need to know about tax. Oh, that's very useful. Very useful. And it's it basically explains it in the post, but if you're a brand new freelancer, so this is advice if you're brand new, and you're only doing, you know, one or two articles in a year and that's all you're ever going to do so it's only going to add up to a very small amount then it might your what you're doing might be considered a hobby and you don't have to declare it as income but if you then ramp up your freelancing activity it may the tax office may deem it more than a hobby and as a you know proper source of income so you kind of need to make a decision as to where you want to categorize where you want to categorize this so have a read of um of this which is written it's written by liz russell who is from e-tax and she's written it specifically for freelance writers so it's a useful post really useful because that kind of information is not always easy to come across like not easy to find in a distilled way like yes. it's, it's all there obviously the 80 website is massively oh, informative but you well you're just wading through stuff aren't you yeah. so if you find someone else who can concisely put it together for you then I'm all over that yes and I'm a bit obsessed by tax I know we have discussed <laughs> small problem in your personality before. so I thought it was a very useful post to put on the blog Do you know what I thought was hilarious was the number of people who were surprised by the fact that I was more of a word nerd than you were in that from that <laughs> quiz I thought that was hilarious I need to point out people that I um started out in journalism as a sub-editor. Mm. So I do have those conversations about commas. I have them regularly. Mm. I still have them to this day. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And um, do you cringe when you see a packet of M&Ms? Uh, oh, yes. Now oh, that you mention it. Oh I try, But you know what? I don't look closely at the packaging. I just open them up and yeah, pour them in enough. my mouth because I love them so much. Yeah. I did, I, did I share with you the fact that I actually thought that um, my youngest son – Mr. A, I actually thought he was going to t- come out looking like an M&M because I ate that many <laughs> M&Ms during my pregnancy with him. I was I was obsessed. You get kind of weirdly obsessed with weird things. Okay. And I was weirdly obsessed with M&Ms and I was convinced he was just going to come out like bright red, round oh, and no. little white boots on because he was just... <laughs> I'm not so much into M&Ms as I, as I am into peanut M&Ms, but when, no. I, when I do eat them, I do try to not look at the packet because of that damn apostrophe, apostrophe. that it's they no put good. after the I M. I know, I know. Anyway, let us move on. For other interesting tips like uh, the, you know, <laughs> 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 what's funny? 
funny. I'm just waiting to see where you're going with this. Yeah. No, for other interesting tips that are not to do with how to make your child look like M&Ms, but <laughs> great advice from Alison if you're a freelance writer, if you want to be a writer, uh, your newsletter. My newsletter, yes. My newsletter is a mix of um, news about my books as well as, you know, the occasional reference to M&Ms probably and, um, and writing tips and advice. And I do try to find the best writing links that I can to share with yes. my Yes. It's my an readers. awesome newsletter. I read mm. it every month. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and what, about, what are you doing this month? Well, for those of you who want to join the Writer Centre newsletter, just remember yes. that you could win a $200 Booktopia voucher. So mm. go to writercentre.com.au slash news. And we'll put the link in the show notes to that and to Alison's website, which is alisontate.com. It is. And so what are you doing in the coming week? Well, I'll be wrangling children, obviously, and um, mm, I have a couple of little jobs to do and, you know, I'm still trying to – I'm st- well, do you know what I did last week? I've got to share this with you. Tell I, um, I've got sort of a new um, middle grade girls book that I'm writing. Oh, yes. I wrote 10,000 words in three days on that thing. Oh, dear God. I know, around my other stuff. I was in, I was in one of those – you know how you have those moments that are just genius where you're – you're so into it and you, you're writing obsessively and it's all just flowing and it's yes. coming out. It was one of those. It was like a frenzy. Oh, wow. And then I got to the end of it and I haven't been able to look at it since. So, Fair enough. <laughs> but, yeah, so I might try and I might try and do a bit more on that. It will just depend on, on, you know, the school holidays. They can be problematic. But yes. We'll and what about you? What will you be doing? Um, I'll be doing a bit of cleaning up. Um, <laughs> because uh, I have, um, you know, sold my house and in order to sell my house, we had some staging furniture come in. Ooh. Yeah. So the, the staging furniture. Did you take in. photos of it for us so I can have a look at how different it looked? Oh, it looks really different. <laughs> can you put a photo up on the, I would like to see a photo. Put your hand up. You would like to see a photo on the podcast. People are there with their hands in the air, Val. Put All it right. up to see it. All right. Well, you'll be shocked, Al, because I will put the photo up of the room you normally stay in. Okay. When you... You will not recognize it. Okay. Because I love it. you know what it normally looks like. And okay. I will put the photo up of that of that room as it looks now. Well and for another few days until the staging company take the furniture away. And you'll just go, Oh my god, Val, why didn't you have that furniture whenever I stayed? Oh. <laughs> you'll just there, go, You made me sleep on that and when I, I know, could have been sleeping on that. Comfortable bed in there, isn't there? It's oh, astounding. Oh. It's straight out of a magazine, whereas poor Al slept on the blow up mattress. <laughs> I love a blow-up mattress. I'm, I'm all over that. It's good. Blow-up mattresses are my favourite thing. <laughs> anyway. Well, moving on from blow-up mattresses, we've come to the end of our podcast now. Where can we find – please do give us a shout-out on social media if you enjoy the podcast or just give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you and start the conversation. Big shout-out to Jez De Silva for your continuing comments. We love hearing from you. We do. Uh, but uh, where do we find you on social media, Al? Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and, of course, at my website, alisontate.com. And remember, Al's great newsletter is at alisontate.com. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And, of course, you can follow the Writer Centre Twitter at Writer Centre AU as well. Uh, But that brings us to the end. So thank you, everyone, for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.